Hey everybody, welcome back to Three Right Turns. I have a great show for you today. You might recall a few weeks ago, I went on a fellow political podcast called Moving Forward. And this week, I repay the courtesy by having one of the co-hosts of that show on mine. We'll get to that conversation in just a bit. But first, let's talk about Bernie. Bernie, of course, dropped out of the Democratic race, uh, primary race last week. And in typical Bernie fashion, he did it fairly unconventionally. He has suspended his campaign, but he's still on the ballot and requesting his supporters continue to vote for him in remaining state primary contest. And I, Ohio's primary was delayed, and I'm planning on doing that. There's a lot of sound strategic reasons for giving Bernie as many delegates as he can. If you care about getting you know, a more progressive agenda passed um, and a more progressive platform to, for Joe Biden to run on, then that all makes good common sense. For all, for all intents and purposes, uh, you know, Bernie's not going to be uh, a candidate for, for president. Now, as I mentioned before, Bernie was my first choice, followed by Elizabeth Warren. Then there's a pretty big drop off to the rest of the field. And I wouldn't say Joe Biden was my last choice in that field for president, but but he wasn't that far from the bottom, really. Now, why don't I like Biden? Well, because he's a moderate centrist Democrat who's running on a return to normalcy. I don't want a return to 2012 style normalcy. That normalcy featured millions of people who couldn't afford health care and housing. That normalcy continued foreign wars and extrajudicial killings. That normalcy built the cages on our southern border that Trump later filled with children. That normalcy presided over accelerating wealth inequality and did nothing as college costs and debt spiraled out of control. Now, a separate question is, would I prefer the 2012 normalcy to what's passing for normalcy in 2020? Well, you're goddamn right I would. Now, I'm not going to belabor the point because people are still hurting about Bernie dropping out and there's passions running wild and and some others are dancing on his political grave. I don't want to pour fuel on that fire. But over the course of the spring and summer, we're going to be talking a lot about electoral politics, political efficacy, how we should move forward, either with a Biden win this fall or a Trump win, because either way, like I've been saying as a constant theme, we have a lot of work left to do. Even if Bernie had gotten a nomination, even if Bernie had defeated Trump and won, we would still have a lot of work to do. A lot of what we're going to be talking about in the months ahead comes down to when you don't get what you want politically, what should your strategy be? Harm reduction or acceleration? In the classic trolley problem, which is a thought experiment designed to kind of tease out how you feel about morality and ethics, you're asked to imagine that there's a trolley cart barreling out of control down a set of tracks, and you are standing on a switch. And you can divert that train from a track that has five people standing on it to a track that just has one person standing on it. And they're not going to be able to dodge or do anything crazy like that. It's a binary choice. Flip the switch for one or five to die. And there's no way to avoid that. So the morality comes down to which choice does the least amount of harm and whether you have the moral courage to actually make that choice or do nothing and let the five people die through your inaction. And that's basically the harm reduction argument, because right now we have the Trump train barreling down towards America with four more years. That would almost certainly mean two more conservative Supreme Court justices, giving them a 7-2 majority and likely maintaining that for an entire generation. Trump has so far pushed through an additional 191 judges to federal benches. Four more years, and he could perhaps double that number. Now, 
if you then get the progressive candidate of your dreams in 2024, how much luck are they going to have getting progressive legislation pushed through the judicial system? You got to ask yourself that. Also, four more years of Trump's going to mean DACA recipients will most likely be screwed. The brutality at the southern border is going to continue. Corruption is going to continue at its record pace. Reproductive rights are going to be threatened. Healthcare will get more and more expensive and less and less people be covered. Obamacare could very well collapse entirely as it's been effectively defunded. The post office may be privatized, which says who knows what about some potential universal mail-in ballot system that we could all trust. And you're going to keep a president who we've always thought would be a shit show during a disaster and who has obliged us with the total shit show that is this coronavirus response. And if we... And we are guaranteed to continue to do nothing and, in fact, make matters much, much worse as a country when it comes to the environment. And we're running out of time to do much harm reduction when it comes to global climate change. But if we throw the switch, maybe we are able to divert America onto the Biden track. We will certainly get two liberal Supreme Court justices put on the bench unless Mitch McConnell thinks he can live forever and keep a president democratically elected from appointing judges for four years, which... You know, he might think that you're going to have political corruption will continue. I'm not a fool, but not at the present levels. You might have a chance to hold some people accountable. We'll also get a president that even if you think his brain is faulty, which I don't, uh, will surround himself with competent leadership and a cabinet that respects scientific and expert consensus on things. We would definitely get improvements and shoring up of Obamacare. We stand a good chance of getting a public option. And America's pulling out of various political treaties around climate change could be reduced. And once again, we can begin to start leading on this matter rather than resisting and throwing monkey wrenches into efforts to save a comfortably habitable planet. So... That's the harm reduction argument, and I think it seems reasonable. In fact, I plan on making that argument for harm reduction throughout the 2020 general election campaign. But I do see where the other side is coming from, and hopefully I can do a good job of framing the acceleration argument, which goes like this. We live in a society where trolleys are routinely running away with no brakes, killing innocent people. If we keep pulling the switch and killing one versus five, people think... Eh, trolley's only killing the one person, no big deal. But if trolleys start killing five people a pop, maybe it starts to get headlines and people sit up and take notice. The reason why things are so bad now is because people are complacent. The average American isn't feeling the misery that is a daily fact of life for people living below the poverty line or in marginalized communities or in less developed countries that we take advantage of economically. We now have had multiple opportunities to elect a trolley conductor who has pledged to reform that faulty system that keeps making trolleys rampage through our communities, but instead, we keep putting forth people who want to pull switches. And I'm no longer going to support the system, and if that means in the short term more people suffer and die, then so be it. Because in the long term, we'll replace that system of murderous trolleys and no one has to die. Now... I can't tell you which argument is correct because I don't know you. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how much you know about civics and how the American political system works. All I can do is provide perspectives and accurate information and help you make the best moral and ethical and an informed decision you can. I can share my perspective. I can tell you what I'm going to do and why. But I recognize that not everyone's going to see it the way I do. And I also recognize that everyone has moral lines that they won't cross. For example... What if Joe Biden turns out to be a rapist? 
Until recently, he has been accused, uh, not just accused, he's admitted to it and apologized for it. Behavior that's been described as creepy towards women, including unwanted and uncomfortable hugging and touching and invading of their personal space. And honestly, I think it's kind of wild that not more was made of that during the primary. But, you know, there you go. Very recently, however, one woman has come forward and has accused him in the early 90s of pinning her against the wall digitally penetrating her, and then exacting political revenge on her for speaking out about it. Now, hopefully, we've learned a few things about Me Too in these past few years. A common slogan that came out of that movement was Believe Women. Now, I was never quite comfortable with that uh, precise slogan because it turns out that women can be just as conniving, duplicitous, and cruel as men. And if you believe otherwise, that's literal sexism. But what I do believe is that all women should be taken seriously and every allegation should be investigated in a fair and open manner to determine whether those allegations hold up. I also believe that if Joe Biden did sexually assault a woman in 1993, it was almost certainly not the first or last time he'd do it. Because I've seen with Me Too that these things seem to go one of two ways. One, you get a single credible accusation that can't be verified or no further accusations are made and it kind of goes away after a while. Maybe the woman made it up. Maybe she was mistaken. Or maybe the man had a one-time lapse of judgment or transgress and kind of quote-unquote got away with it. Or two, you get a single accusation, then two or three more, then the floodgates open because a person who would pin another to a wall and sexually gratify themselves and experience absolutely zero repercussions from this act, tends to do it again and again and again. So, how would I vote and encourage people to vote if things start looking more like Scenario 2 for Mr. Biden and less like Scenario 1? Well, keep listening, because we're going to get into it towards the end of the conversation I'm about to have that's going to make up the bulk of this podcast. But before we get to that, I guess I need to introduce my guest first. He goes by the name of Rio Publican on his Moving Forward podcast, where each week... A right-leaning conservative attempts to find common ground in terms of politics, policy, ethics, and morality with the left-leaning progressive. The bulk of their weekly conversations have centered around Andrew Yang's former candidacy. Rio is the conservative figure on Moving Forward, and I'm happy he agreed to come onto the show and talk with me. Many times over the past few months I've been doing three right turns, I've been asked to talk about things like universal basic income and other popular Yang proposals. But to be honest, I didn't have a deep grounding in those policies. What I do know is that Yang was one of the very few people to try to begin talking about how automation is going to transform our economy uh, and put forth serious and well thought out proposals and policy to help mitigate the potential damage that could do to the average American. And make no mistake, I think automation is a good thing for the whole and for the future, the same way I think like global trade and cooperation is a good thing. But in the short and medium terms, it could devastate the working and middle class unless we plan ahead and think these things through. So Rio is here to introduce himself and field my questions about the concept of UBI, uh, Yang's democracy dollar proposals. And obviously, you know, we're not going to see eye to eye on every issue, but I have been able to have productive discussions with him in the past. So if you want to hear one of those prior talks to him, please check out his podcast, Moving Forward, uh, number 95 on education. Welcome to Three Right Turns, Rio. Hey, I want to start because... I like to start uh, the way I started the podcast, which is kind of like letting the audience get to know you as a person, um, you know, before we delve into political issues. So I kind of want to know, uh, who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Religious background, current status, as, as, as much as you're comfortable talking about. 
Yeah. Uh, why don't we take those with specific questions? Because the, the, I, I don't, I don't want to give bore you guys with like a whole biography of myself. Are you? Or did you? So I know you're you're on the West Coast now, correct? Yes. Did you, right. gr- you grow up there? Mm-hmm. Uh, would yeah, you- I grew up uh, kind of going back and forward uh, between Oregon, or really Northern California slash Southern Oregon and Southern California. Mm-hmm. My parents divorced when I was a teenager. Uh, and, uh, they both actually ultimately moved, well, they moved to Southern California, but different parts of Southern California, Palm Springs and La Jolla, which is a suburb of, uh, San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for part of my childhood, I kind of bounced back and forth between those places. Uh, but I went to college in, um, Ashland, Oregon, which mm. is so far South that it's almost Northern California. Now and I'm actually in Northern California right now on the coast in the Redwoods. Nice. Uh, now Northern California and Oregon, um, that can go either way. Would you say your like upbringing was mostly like rural, urban, suburban? Um, I mean, I, I, there, I guess they're all kind of small towns. I mean, so Ashland is a small town. It feels kind of like a European town. Um, it's very unusual for America (laughs) (laughs) because it has a a Shakespeare festival that's world renowned. That's won Tony awards and things like that, that goes for nine months out of the year. So even though it only has a population of 20,000 people, uh, there's a ton of tourism that goes through there. So it's, it feels very cosmopolitan. Um, Palm Springs is a fairly small town. La Jolla is a small suburb of a big city or relatively big city, San Diego. Mm. Uh, So, I I mean, I kind of ran the gamut, but I wouldn't say my upbringing felt rural per se, but it definitely was not what most people would call urban either. Downtown, yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't really suburban. Like my childhood, I went to a private school and all my friends lived outside of town. Mm -hmm. So everybody had property outside of town. Um, so that was pretty rural, but we were also, you know, close enough to town that we could drive into town and go to restaurants and things like that. Gotcha. What's your like religious background? Uh, it was pretty like default Protestant or Catholic or non not affiliated. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm an atheist. Okay. I call myself an agnostic atheist. And I, I philosophically speaking, I think most people when they're being honest are agnostic. I think most theists are agnostic theists. You know, if you ask them, they'll say, well, I don't know that God exists. I choose to believe that, mm-hmm. you know, that he or she does. Um, so I'm an agnostic atheist. Uh, I wasn't really raised religiously, but the school that I went to as a child was religious. It was Protestant. Um, yeah. And uh, my mom was kind of nominally religious, but didn't take it all that seriously. It was, you know, like she, if you asked her, she'd say she would believe in God. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was mostly like just a social thing right, <laughs> for her right. you know, church and, you know, making friends and um, that kind of stuff. My dad was an atheist. I remember having a conversation with him. So when I was a kid, I, I was like my mom. I kind of nominally believed in God. Yeah. But um, that's not terribly surprising because all the authority figures in my life taught it to me like it was a fact. You right, know? right. <laughs> it didn't take me long after I got away from the, the private school to figure out that that wasn't true. So I went to several different colleges and um, they were all. Uh, very different experience. Um, I joke. I joke that my private school had me about two years ahead of public schools in every subject except science. We were about two hundred years behind. <laughs> How did you get first, or when did you first become interested in politics? Um, and I know. Um, let me throw a couple labels at you and see what you identify with. Uh, Republican. Uh, I would say ex-Republican. Okay. I was a member of the college Republicans when I was younger. 
Um, I've been voting, I guess you would call me a swing voter for most of my adult life. Mm -hmm. Um, I, um, I tend to vote. Well, let's just leave it at that. You throw a few more labels. Conservative. How about conservative? Yeah, I would, I would identify with that. Never Trumper. Yes. You're definitely still dying. The will never Trumper. All right. Uh, when did you first get interested in politics and kind of describe your political journey where you were a, a member of the college Republicans until you get to, I guess, 2016 and you say just hell no. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, um, Donald Trump was when I finally just said, like, you know, the Republican Party has lost its goddamn mind. It's not a viable option. It needs to lose for its own good. So I, um, and uh, but, you know, I, I mean, it's not, it's not like I was you know, a straight ticket, always vote for Republican kind of person. I, 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 I think that since um, Bill Clinton, really, the Democratic Party has been pretty conservative and right wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on social issues, I'm more progressive. Um, although uh, even on those, I guess, in, by today's standards, some people would consider me conservative. But, you know, the, the, the needle keeps moving, right? Mm-hmm. Like what what's considered progressive or conservative changes over time. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's the <laughs> that's the way the arrow points anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're I mean, that's the, the fundamental like uh, divide between conservative and progressive thought is like progressives always want to go to the next thing. And conservatives always want to say, whoa, hell, hold on a minute. What's this going to do to society? Yeah, I mean, if I'm being reflective, I, I mean, I think everybody really, if they're being honest, probably is, you know, a little conservative and a little progressive. It's just that some of us lean more one way than the other. I tend to err on the side of caution um, you know, I, I, I take big risks in my own life, but when it comes to huge social changes, I tend to think that, it, you know, gradual progress is safer. It's not that I'm opposed to progress. It's, I'm just skeptical of what people claim will be progress. I sure. ask myself, okay, okay, they call that progressive, but will that actually result in progress in real life? Or is that going to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Sure. And I, I honestly uh, consider myself conservative in the way I live my own life. You know, I try to be very frugal. I try to, you know, uh, take calculated risks. Like, you know, if I'm if I'm going to do something crazy, like stop my computer programming career and get into podcasting, do I have enough saved up? What's my 401k look like? Do I got, you yeah. know, so, and I think that um, for broadly speaking, progressive movements to work the population needs to all be in that kind of like it has to be able to by and large take care of themselves but then you know when because you know cat catastrophes happen illnesses things beyond people's control say like a pandemic uh that's where the government needs to um help the citizenry out because other otherwise people just get kind of like you know mired um in 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 the and, and you lose entire generations of folks um Tell me about moving forward, because it feels like that that that, that project, and of course, I, I guessed it on there a couple of weeks ago. It feels like that project that you and Corey are, are going, going over there seems like an answer to what you maybe are, are, are doing or feeling out in the political wilderness on, on your side of things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I'm feeling a little politically homeless. Um, I, I think that out of the uh, available options to me, probably the DNC establishment is probably the closest to where I would be. Um, so, you know, if you spend it, as you, I'm sure know, if you spend enough time in the company of people who are far enough left in American politics, you know, being classically liberal, um, which is what the Republican establishment used to be before Trump took over that party, um, and what the DNC establishment is to some extent, um, is seen as like pretty right wing, right? So it's, and, and certainly in Europe, that is seen as right wing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I'm not opposed to social liberalism. Um, I just, as I said, I think we need to have a serious conversation about the best way of doing that. I know you, you identify as a social Democrat. I know lots of people like that. My wife is like that. Mm -hmm. uh, important to say that's not the same thing as a democratic socialist. They, um, Bernie Sanders has a lot of people confused about those terms. They sound similar, but they actually mean wildly different things. Mm -hmm. This is the first time I've actually had a, a conversation about like economics on the on the podcast. We've only okay. been doing this for 11 episodes. So let's talk. Let's 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 define some terms, because okay. if you listen to Fox News or even a lot of centrist media, liberal, socialist, democratic, socialist, social democrat all kind of get lumped into one one big category. So let's break it down. Um, liberal just means like you are of the enlightenment. Uh, you feel that people yeah. should have a, a great deal of personal liberty, uh, that personal liberty is, in, is intrinsically linked to their economic liberty, um, so that government should have as little say on the, the, the people's private affairs as possible. You know, founding yeah, fathers. Mean, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. To this day, if you look up the word liberalism in an encyclopedia, it's going to sound like it's describing what the Republican Party used to be. Mm -hmm. um, and that's about right. But it also... I mean, that it's not entirely true either, because, you know, the Republican Party also tends to, you know, defend things like Social Security and Medicare, Medicare to some extent, because they have a lot of older voters. <laughs> and those are both things that are to the left of pure liberalism sure. already. Right. Sure. I mean, really, every modern society is a social democracy already. Mm -hmm. The interesting debate is about what specific policies are the best way of doing that. I don't think there are very many people except for, I guess, maybe some like anarcho-capitalists or something right. who would who would say that we need to turn the clock back entirely on all that. I want to reform those things so that they become more fair and more respective of individual rights, but I don't want to do away with them. So like a social Democrat would be someone that uh, says they believe in the market and market forces, market economies. Uh, but they say we need to account for externalities and market failures and we need to have a strong social safety net so that people have some kind of bare, you know, uh, a bare minimum of uh, uh, of uh, life's life, like whether it's health care, whether it's food, whether it's housing, that's, there's got to be some kind of bare floor that all citizens can count on to have an effective democracy. Would that be fair? Would you would. Would you agree yeah. with that definition? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, obviously, it depends. There's lots of different. It de I mean, I mean, the 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 devil is in the details, sure. as they say, right? Sure. But in general, yeah, that's right. And and it also really describes most political parties in you know um, liberal democracies today, mm -hmm. to one degree or another. Um, it even describes Trump's Republican Party, which in some ways has actually moved left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation, you know, but no, it's um, funny because I've seen on the far right, like, you know, you get into the alt right territory and beyond that they are starting to adopt a lot of socialist rhetoric. It's just exactly right. it's just socialist for white socialism for white people only. <laughs> about, yeah, I mean, they, they wouldn't publicly admit that. But yeah. in private, I've had some people say that. To yeah, me no, that. it's wild. And then Democratic socialists are actual socialists. They want to have um, publicly um, owned corporations, uh, very little private uh, wealth and um, uh, ownership of the means of production. But they want to achieve those through democratic means. And then, yep, that's right. If you keep going left, you go into Marxist Leninism, Maoism and stuff where it's like you, you remove the, the, the democratic part of the socialism and then you just socialism at the at the uh, end of a rifle. So mm -hmm. now we've got those terms defined. Uh, moving forward is you say, Corey, <laughs> is he he's a uh, is he a social Democrat or is he more of a democratic yeah. socialist? No, he's, a, he's a social Democrat. Okay. Um, I think he is 
it, it, it's if if so our podcast is called moving forward we mm-hmm. actually just recorded our 100th episode congrats Corey is definitely leans more toward the progressive side um and i'm more toward the conservative side but uh what we actually do with the show is we seek consensus on values and policy but really we we both believe that you know sane social liberals which um i could clarify is really sort of the philosophy behind what you're calling social democracy, right? Mm-hmm. So social liberalism was, was uh, historically was a compromise between socialism and liberalism. Um, and what happened in the United States is that over time, in colloquial usage, we dropped the word social from it, and we just started calling that liberal. So that's part of the reason why there's a lot of confusion around that term. So now, sure. you know, there are people who will refer to Bernie Sanders as like the more liberal candidate mm-hmm. um, in the primary. And they what they mean is, leaning more toward the social side of, of social, of liberal, right. right, <laughs> than, right, right. than Biden. But yeah, so Corey would be what I call a social liberal. And, uh, and I, we, we just believe that if we, if we can demonstrate that it is possible for two people, you know, one's a little more to the right, one's a little more to the left to actually find consensus and compromise that that could help us, you know, um, reform our liberal democracy so that it's more robust because it's in a lot of, it's a, it's in danger right now. Mm-hmm. I think liberal democracy all over the world is in danger right now. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about that. But basically, you know, Corey and I believe that it's important for people like, you know, you and me or him and me to, to compromise because there are people out there, fascists and, you know, authoritarian communists who, who re- really are a threat to our way of life. Um, and if, if people like me and Corey are fighting with each other, if we're at war with each other, then we have, we don't stand any chance of standing up to our actual enemies. Right. Um, so it's not that we believe in some kumbaya idea where, you know, it'd be, we have a postpartisan America and everybody gets along. It's not mm-hmm. that at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's much more like, you know, we need to learn to get along with each other or we're screwed. <laughs> right. Right. We'll be the, the people to our authoritarian lefts and rights. will will eat our, eat our lunch, dinner and everything else. Yeah, uh, that's that's our common ground, I would say. So so it seemed like the thing that brought you guys together more than anything is uh, Andrew Yang's campaign. And uh, I know you are a very passionate advocate about UBI. I want to talk about, because I haven't talked about UBI in this podcast much at all, because in this election cycle, in the 2020 election cycle, it seemed like it was um, more of a, it, it's one of those uh, kind of new ideas and Americans were just kind of hearing for the first time, whereas Medicare for all, um, you know, college tuition plan, stuff like that had been in the zeitgeist for four years. So I focused on the other and I just kind of like paid attention to the arguments. I know the arguments against it from the left and from the right. And I just wanted you to kind of as an evangelist for the universal basic income, talk about what it is, who it's for and why you're so passionate about it. Yeah, I mean, um, well, Yang is a really interesting character because he has a platform. I think the average person probably thinks of him as like the UBI candidate. But in reality, he had by far the most robust and detailed platform of anybody in the primary. Um, and so if you guys go listen to our podcast, you, you'll see that we went through Yang's platform in detail. And this guy had like four times as many policies as Elizabeth Warren, who is known as being like the wonky candidate right, with all right. the policies. Right. right. And she is. But Yang is just that on steroids. Mm-hmm. And he is coming at it from a a perspective that is um, a bit heterodox in the Democratic Party because it does tend to thread the needle a bit more with individual liberty and small government than 
most Democratic candidates do. So that's why he was appealing to people like me. Um, but at the same time, it was also very progressive in the sense that he was really working to find ways to create a much more robust social safety net, as you say. Um, and that wasn't just through the UBI. That was across the board. He he just threaded the needle between social liberalism and liberalism. I like to call I call his policies um, liberalism 2.0, which I think is actually what we need to preserve capitalism. Yang even has a quote where he said something like, you know, I'm a capitalist and I believe that universal basic income is necessary for capitalism to continue. So what what is it? What's the what's the big idea? Um, so obviously he didn't originate it. It's been around a long time. Thomas Paine was for it. Milton Friedman was for a version of it. Um, so there, you know, uh, Martin Luther King was for it. So, you know, there are people all over the political spectrum who have believed in some kind of a universal basic income. Yang's policy isn't perfect. It's not exactly the way I would write it. Um, but it's good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Basically what he did is he said, you know, instead of having this means tested welfare system that has a whole bunch of downsides and and he was taking the downside seriously, um, the criticism of the right of of our uh, means tested tax and spend welfare state, mm-hmm. he took that criticism very seriously and was indeed looking to reform the welfare system. He was not looking to just kick everybody off welfare. He, he was not going to force anybody off of any welfare programs at all. That's a that's not true. Um, that's just something that Bernie Sanders and uh, uh, AOC and some others uh, accused him of falsely. If you actually read his policy, it was it was it was great policy. So basically, what he was going to do is he was going to give every single American citizen from the age of eighteen onward for the rest of their life a thousand dollars a month through the federal government. So the idea was that he was going to index UBI to GDP. So this is an important point because a lot another criticism of it, this one more from the left side was that, well, $1,000 a month isn't enough to live on. You know, this is just a, you know, a gimmick um, that's not really actually going to help people. Um, well, the, if you index it to GDP, it creates a positive feedback loop because regular people spend their money. Mm-hmm. Yes, they save it and they would save more of it. They should save more of it. Uh, that's a good thing. But, mo- you know, in comparison to wealthy people, regular people are much more likely to spend their money. So that goes back into the economy. It actually creates jobs and it grows the economy. Uh, it grows the economy much more than, you know, a, a tax break for the rich does. Um, and that's something that you would think the left would have liked. Um, so the idea being that there's this positive feedback loop and over time the GDP grows uh, and therefore the UBI also grows. Uh, it, it's entirely possible that you could have a situation down the road eventually with a policy like that where the new floor is what we currently call middle class. Mm-hmm. Um But, you know, it's not a pie in the sky utopian idea. It's a realistic, serious, sober economic policy that could actually accomplish that in real life. And the downside about things that could work in real life is that they're a bit practical and a bit pragmatic. And, you know, they're they're not promising that it's going to rain gold from the sky, which is an easy enough thing to do in politics. And I think that's part of the reason it didn't catch on with the base. I know. So the criticism for this on the right is like, I mean, uh, you're giving people free money. What the hell? That's 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 Mm -hmm. ridiculous. Um, I don't know if we want to discuss that because I don't think I have a super right leaning audience. Um, I know the critique from the left was uh, and that's what the tying to GDP was was the, the smart stroke is this could 
create like a permanent surf class, you know, that like, uh, you know, if you've seen some of the science fiction in the last few years, like the expanse, I'm a big fan of that. They postulate in 150 years or some kind of basic income and everyone that's on basic is just this, this teeming, you know, uh, mass of humanity that can't, it essentially breaks the ability to climb socially that like mm-hmm. you got this and unemployment's going to crash because of automation. Uh, and you're going to have very, very, more and more people competing over fewer and fewer jobs to progress. Um, how does, has anyone, I, the thing I was curious about, has anyone ran any progressions? Like if you assume the GDP grows from like the last 30 years, like let's go like the 1980 GDP from there to now, and let's like run a simulation where you tie the thousand dollars a month payment to GDP and run it forward 30 years, assuming past growth. Has anyone done any study like that to show like how big of piece of pie are we talking about in like a generation from now? Um, there, there, yes and no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you you can you can do some math and extrapolate things out based on this or that you know economic model. Um, but the uh, how do I put this? Um, the idea, of course, is that the GDP would grow grow more and would grow faster because you're stimulating the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the general principle is correct. Uh, but, you know, Yang wasn't making any specific predictions about how fast it would grow. The, the point was that we were all kind of invested in the economy together and we would all benefit from its growth together. Part of the reason that there's a lack of trust in our economic institutions right now is people don't feel like they have an investment in the economy. Sure. And you hear that all the time on the yeah. left. People say, oh, line goes up, line goes down in stock market. If you're in the working poor, that literally means nothing to you. Yeah. Yeah. This would, this, this would mean that when the stock market does well, everybody gets more money. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so, you know, the, the way it's written, it's not like your check would go up and down all the time willy nilly. It's more like when you have sustained growth, it now increases and now it's set at that amount and it can't go down. But in general, that's the principle. Um, okay. So I actually would like to address the two concerns you raise about from the left and the right. Sure. Um, and the way I would actually characterize it is I would say, ideological purists don't like the policy Um, because, you know, you have ideological purists on the right and the left. And of course, a purist on the right, what I mean by that is they're not going, instead of comparing the policy to the the system we have now and recognizing that it's better, Mm -hmm. um, what they're doing is they're comparing it to some ideal that they have in mind, which is, of course, that they want to totally do away with the social safety net altogether, kick everybody off welfare in social security. Roll it back to the 1920s. Yeah, yeah. So those people are crazy. That's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. And from a right-wing perspective, what Yang was proposing is better. It's also better from a left-wing perspective. But first, I'm going to explain why it's better from a right-wing perspective. If you think about it, we already have a system that takes money from the middle class and gives it exclusively to the poor through a means-tested system. Mm-hmm. It also, um, I mean, if you want to get into corporate welfare, it also gives money to a lot of super rich people from sure. the middle class, which is probably even more fucked up, right? Right. Uh, can I cuss on this show? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, good. Um, so if you if you think about that, it's, okay, so now we have this other, this, this other policy, and this is where the left's criticism about Yang supposedly ending welfare comes in. He made a conscious decision that UBI would not stack on existing welfare programs. So what that means is somebody who is on welfare has an option. They can either stay on the welfare program or they can get their UBI. And in most cases, most people on welfare would be better off with $1,000 a month cash than with whatever programs they currently have. And the reason that he did that, and from the right, this is a this is something the right likes, but it's probably something the left might like less. Mm-hmm. Um, there are also things about the policy that 
the left would like more than the right. So, sure, you know, sure. once again, threading the needle, you're going to piss everybody off a little bit. You're also going to satisfy everybody a little bit. It's the idea. Um, so because it doesn't stack on welfare, that what that does is it solves the problem of the welfare cliff, which is something that people on the right are concerned about. Hmm. The welfare cliff is where, you know, you're basically punished by the government for succeeding. Mm-hmm. If you get a job or a raise, now you're going to lose the benefits. Right. So if you think about it, the thing that's not allowed to stack is actually means-tested welfare. UBI can stack on any other money that you earn. So the point of not allowing it to stack along with welfare is because, well, you're going to lose welfare when your income goes up anyway, right? And this is increasing your income. It's passive income. It's basically like a modest trust for every American. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who have a $1,000 a month trust fund, maybe you think that they should be able to go on welfare or not. But, you know, if people are earning... Say, say somebody is, you know, a single mom and she gets, she's very organized and she's able to jump through all of the hoops that you can imagine. Maybe she's bringing in $2,000 a month. That would be a lot through mm-hmm. all the various welfare programs that we have. Um, she can stay on that. Yang isn't taking any of that away from her. But, you know, 90% of people on welfare are getting less than $1,000 a month total in value. And having cash is way more freedom and flexibility than saying like, oh, you're allowed to spend this, but only on certain items, et cetera, and blah, blah, blah. This gives people the freedom to live where they want to live. They could, you know, rent a house and have roommates. You know, they they can enter the actual market as opposed to the welfare market, which is a separate market that actually does maintain a permanent underclass. Right. And and so the the point, the idea being that as you become more successful, your UBI takes over so that you don't lose anything. Right now, they do lose stuff if they succeed. This would actually just make it possible for people to get off welfare, but it's not forcing anybody off. So from the rights perspective, that's a very good thing because what it means is more there's more independence. Um, people are actually incentivized to participate in the economy. Yeah, to make their life better. Um, yeah, exactly. And because it goes to everybody, it also means that people in the middle class who I would argue are massively overtaxed right now get some very substantial tax relief. Mm-hmm. We haven't had a tax cut for the middle class like that in living memory, I don't think, right? I mean, we're talking about a middle class couple getting $2,000 a month off their tax bill. Mm-hmm. That's massive, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So if people on the right who aren't purists can can get along, can, can figure out that, oh, wait a minute, giving the middle class a tax relief and getting people off welfare seems like actually an improvement. <laughs> well, so the... What happens, I, I guess, um, how strongly is this tied to GDP? And the thing I, I've always worried about um, is because, you know, me, I've been paying attention to automation for like 10 years. You know, I came out of programming and it's quickly it's been apparent to me that we are going to have severe, you know, segments of the economy hit. Like you think that the coal miners kick up a a, a, a din, uh, losing 50,000 jobs. Wait until every truck driver in America is out of work. And that's coming yeah. like a freight train. That's 10, 15, 20 years, probably technically able to to happen right now. But, but you're going to have to jump through a lot of uh, you know bureaucratic hoops to get approval for all that. I worry that like, how does what is what does UBI look like in a America where like 30 percent of people are unemployed because the jobs have just been automated? Um, Because like 2000, let's 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 assume like a nuclear family, you got a mom and dad, some kids, 2000 bucks. If that's your if if that's all you've got and there's no jobs to get, you know, how Mm -hmm. how what, what that's not enough to raise a family in most parts of America. 
what that that's the thing I'm worried about. Like, does it do enough? Uh, does it still blunt? I mean, Yang's the only one that's trying to talk about automation. So respect for there. But does it yeah. do enough or is it intended to be like a first draft of policy or what? What do you how do you address that kind of worry, I suppose? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the first thing I would say, and I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm just talking about Yang. I mean, Yang's not in the race anymore. I hear he might be running, probably is running for mayor of New York. Um, you He's know, going so to be a political figure a long, a long time in yeah, the future, yeah. I think. Yeah. You know, I, I hope I can actually vote for him in, for president in the general election someday. He's young, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, obviously this, these ideas are bigger than Yang. But as far as like specifically with Yang, and I imagine any any serious um, political platform would do this as well, you know, there are 199 other other policies. You know, he has uh-huh. a, a specific – he was going to create a trucker's – truckers are right and and had a whole laundry list of things he was going to do in order to help people who were um uh who lose their jobs because of automation and trucking right and 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 so the ubi was not intended to be a panacea that solves that problem Mm. um so that's that's the real answer to that question but as far as while we're talking specifically about ubi the thing to keep in mind is the growth is gradual due to the feedback loop with with gdp but the job loss from automation is also going to be gradual. It's not like every single job that can be automated will all be automated at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Realistically, over time, you're going to lose more and more jobs to automation. And at the same time, some new jobs will be invented. Um, Yang argues that it won't be um, – you won't have as many new jobs as, uh, as old jobs. Not all economists agree with that, but I think he's probably right about that. Um, and so you, you, the, the idea being that you have this UBI as a um, – it's intended to be like a, a safety net It's not an, and, and also a subsidy, tax relief, safety net, you know, subsidy for the economy. It's not really intended to be something to live on long term. Um, that said, over time, as the GDP grows, the UBI will get bigger. And over time, as fewer and fewer jobs exist, as, as human labor is less and less in demand, mm-hmm. the UBI will also be growing at the same time. So is it you know, going to solve that problem by itself? No. Would we be better off with it than without it? I think so. Yeah. I want to talk about something that I actually thought was uh, when I started looking at Andrew Yang's campaign platform that I thought was even maybe next more next level than UBI because you said UBI is not a super new idea it's been kicked around uh, for for a long time which is that's the idea of I think he calls it the democracy bucks mm-hmm. um, so one of the things we've been fighting about in in, in my generation of, of politics is money in politics and the corruptive influence of, of money in politics and what I understand about the democracy bucks idea is that every American would get a set amount of money to contribute to campaigns as they see fit. Like it'd be a per annum, a hundred dollars yeah. maybe. And mm-hmm. you would have that as a pile and you could give it, you know, you could give five bucks to Bernie, you could give two bucks to Biden, you could give you whatever you could do, use it at state, local, whatever. Um, and then is it my, is, am I understanding that all other forms of finance campaign finance would be illegal? No. Well, <laughs> I mean, again, if we're talking specifically about Yang's platform, he does say that he um, supports, uh, a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United, in effect. Which would so, that's what it would take, right? Like with today's political climate, the Supreme Court's made it pretty clear that money is free speech. So mm-hmm. you're, and I, I, I happen to agree with that choice, by the way. Um, 
but this is the interesting. I I don't agree with it, but I can see the argument. I can absolutely see the argument. I think that on the merits of the law and the constitution, it's correct. You can disagree with it morally. Um, Yeah. If a billionaire has a newspaper, (laughs) a newspaper that he uses to print a hundred million copies and give out to people, that's free speech. No one would argue that. Right. Yes. But if he takes the same amount of money and gives it to a camp, like, I, I like I said, I get the uh, argument. If he takes that mm-hmm. same amount of money he'd spend on a hundred million newspapers and just buys, that feels dirtier. But like, what's the difference? What's the difference? What's the actual legal thing that you? So you you need a uh, a, a a constitutional amendment to to figure to, to right. untangle those two things. Yeah. Um, yeah. The let me. Okay. How do I put this? Um, so first of all, the first issue is 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 the constitutional amendment. It's very easy to say as really basically, I think all of the democratic candidates have said that they would support overturning it or that they would only appoint, you know, justices to the Supreme court who would, who would be in favor of overturning it. Mm-hmm. Um, constitutional amendment isn't really something the president can necessarily do. You could use the bully pulpit to, to help it right. for sure. Um, you could definitely appoint justices who are, you know, um, hostile to it. That is a thing that you could do. Uh, but the the lovely thing about the democracy dollars, which, by the way, is the policy of Yang's that is the has already been the most adopted by other candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's very likely to happen with any Democratic administration um, for a number of reasons. The first one is because, as you said, it really does address the concern that most I would say the average American mm-hmm. would ver- would disagree with me. I would say Citizens United's got to go. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it has <laughs> um, to go. So I the, just think av- it, it's it's right, constitutionally yeah. sound. <laughs> the average the average American would like to have big corporations have less influence over our over our government. Sure. And I don't I don't necessarily think they're wrong to. Mm-hmm. I just think that you there are, there's more than one way to solve the problem. And what's nice about the democracy dollars thing is it's a very easy policy to pass. It's extremely cheap. Um, you know, $100 a year per citizen, it adds up to a drop in the bucket in comparison to what the, our government spends on all kinds of other things that are much less useful than this. How does it, can, can, do you know how that would stack up against like all campaign contributions currently? Yeah, that's the thing is that it would massively drown out. Currently. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yeah. So it's a cheap bill that would really fix this problem and that would do it by empowering citizens rather than taking their rights away. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it would also make it, it, it might fix the problem so well that people are just like, okay, well, we're fine with the fact that corporations continue. By the way, they can't, they can't just give unlimited sums of money to a campaign. You understand mm-hmm. that, right? Like the, the actual, the actual Citizens United decision was really quite a compromise. And what they said is that you have to have these um, third party entities that can't actually coordinate with the candidates. You can give money to those. So you basically, you could use your money to fund ads that are you know, attack ads on Donald Trump or that are ads that are meant to make Joe Biden look good, but that you can't coordinate with the campaign. The money can't go through the campaign. But so there already, actually like, are limits on how much ye- an individual can donate to a campaign and they're very low limits. Yeah, but we've already seen where that kind of breaks down, where campaigns make like pre-recorded clips and high resolution artwork and logos and stuff available. So that all you got to do is copy and paste it and, and pay for the ad you know, uh, pay, pay for the, the, the airtime and, and you're good to go. Like there's a lot, it mm-hmm. seems like there's a lot of loopholes that, um, you know, clever people that have a lot of people paid to figure out how to move money around legally can easily get around. 
Yeah, and I hope that Bloomberg throws $2 billion behind Joe Biden's campaign <laughs> indirectly. I think that would be a very patriotic thing to do to save this country from fascism. Sure. Um, anyway, long story short, the democracy dollars, what it would do is it would drown out, it would massively, by by, by a factor of something like 10, mm-hmm. drown out um, the, the current amount of money that's being spent. So you have to ask yourself, are, are, are corporations going to continue to do that if they have to spend 10 times as much? Yeah, some of them will. A lot of them might stop doing it altogether because they'll realize that like the cost doesn't you know, the cost benefit analysis doesn't add up for them anymore. But even if they do continue to do it, you now have money from regular people. Um, so regular people have much more um, power in terms of influencing the policy of politicians, which, you know, is 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 a reform that would make our, our republic more democratic, I think. But you're right. You described how it works exactly correct. Um, they would get $100 each individual, but they could only donate it to a campaign. They could donate it to multiple campaigns. They could break it up if they mm-hmm. wanted to. Yeah. And if they don't do it, they lose it. What I guess one the 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 one thing that came, jumped out at me is like uh, at t- today's state, the average um, information voters have or partake in. Uh, what keeps it seems like this would make this would excavate the problem of celebrity campaigns mm-hmm. because like the rock gets up there and he says, I'm going to save America just like I save uh, the world in the, I don't know what the fuck fast and furious eight, uh, give me your democracy bucks. And he, but, and, and he just runs away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's dem- democratic, but I don't know if it's something that I want to move forward to where like, you know, that's what, well, well, do you understand I mean, my concern? I, I'm, there? I'm incredibly. Like, I'm actually very sympathetic to what you're saying there. Uh-huh. And um, it, you know, this relates to the topic that we addressed at the outset of this conversation, which is the 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 the, the, the tension I would put between populism, which demands more and more power to the people, more direct democracy, so to speak. And liberal democracies, which tend to be much more stable than direct democracies. Um, and so the, the, our founders, we're not pe- believers in pure direct democracy. They thought that that would be a really bad way to run a government, that it would be unstable. And historically, it turns out that they were right about that. It, pretty much without fail, every time a government, every time a democracy loses its liberal protections, the democracy itself dies not long after. It's kind of counterintuitive, but basically... In order to have a stable democracy, you have to have some limitations on what the the majority can do. Right. Because, I mean, give it this way. Like, if the majority could just, you know, vote to give themselves all the goodies, but -hmm. also zero taxes, Mm -hmm. that's a thing that they could do, Mm -hmm. wouldn't result in a very stable economy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right, right. So, I think you're right. I think you're right that you're right to worry about the fact that Regular people might not use the money that well. Yang is fairly libertarian with a small L in the sense that he tends to err on the side of trusting American citizens to do the right thing. Uh, I probably wouldn't go as far along that path as he does, but um, he, uh, you know, I think it comes from a a, a pure place for him. Yeah, I think that um, I'm pretty pro democracy, like expanded democracy. But I think to make that work, you have to have you, you. so I talk about I don't think we're gonna have time to dive into socialism versus capitalism debate because uh, that's that's going to be another half hour plus conversation just to get to an intro. But I think that to the extent that you're going to do things like, you know, direct democracy, um, employ some some socialism, some public um, ownership of, of markets and whatnot, it's the demands you're going to make of your citizen are going to massively increase and far as, as far as like 
what their view of of their relationship to society and what is owed, um, you know, not from just a participation in the economy, but from just uh, being generally informed and educated. And right now we just don't Mm -hmm. make educating the population a priority for its own sake. In fact, a lot of times um, I don't have anything against trade schools um, and like people uh, like earning a trade. But I do. I feel like it's really weird when I hear conservatives say, uh, you know, it's it's not everyone should go to college. Some people can be plumbers. Some people can be this. Some people that it's like, I don't understand why we don't want our plumbers to have a reasonably well grounded education in history and politics and science um because if we need them to make important decisions about is the climate changing is our economy mm-hmm. crashing are 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 we actually being threatened by a foreign force or are we being taken advantage of by propaganda if the plumber's going to vote the plumber's got to have an informed opinion about those things so that's why i'm yeah. like very pro education for education's sake you know mm-hmm. like be a plumber but also have a liberal arts degree <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I would largely agree with that. I, we, you and I had a whole conversation about education sure. on my podcast, mm-hmm. so I would definitely recommend your listeners go check that out mm-hmm. if they want to. Um, we, we would probably disagree about exactly how to implement it, but we definitely Obviously. would share the goal of wanting to have uh, you know, a much better educated population. I think for the long-term stability of a liberal democracy, it's essential. You absolutely have to have an educated population. You know, we, got, we have to put things in, in context, though. I mean, like when the United States was founded, the vast majority of citizens were illiterate. So it's not like we haven't made a lot of progress. There. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's, you know, when the country is founded, it wasn't as democratic as it now. Like the only one. And it probably were... shouldn't have been. I mean, did right. you, would you have wanted a bunch of people who didn't know how to read to be voting directly on every single decision that the government made? Probably not. Sure. <laughs> and it's just like that's where it's like I feel like that as history continues to go forward and we can reverse because I think education has been under attack in my lifetime. Like more and more money has been drawn out. Um, uh, higher education is more and more expensive um, and the public options are less and less viable. And we're going to have to read. And I, I'm always preaching this on our my podcast. There are no quick fixes. Like if, if, uh, if your preferred candidate, Bernie Sanders or Andrew Yang got elected, it's not going to be paradise the next day. This is it took a generation for us to get in this spot. It's going to take at least a generation for us to get back into a place where I think our democracy is healthy and strong and resilient again. Um, mm-hmm. So like I'm more it's not just like what do we need to do in the immediate future? Like I would argue that what we need to do in the immediate future is defeat Donald Trump. But also yeah. what is the next step? Because the thing that concerns me about guys like Biden is like we just need to return to where we were at in 2008 and 2012 and we're going to be fine where we're at in 2008 and 2012 is how we got to Trump. You know? uh, yes and no. Okay. <laughs> that, 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 that's almost a bigger conversation than socialism versus capitalism. Really? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think entirely. I mean, it's, it's important to keep in mind that as, um, as the American citizens become more comfortable with increasingly progressive policies, mm-hmm. um, people like Joe Biden are going to come along. I mean, the reason he supports perhaps somewhat reticently essentially expanding Medicare benefits Mm -hmm. to be universal, but in conjunction with private insurance Mm -hmm. is because if you look at polling, that's what most Americans want. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Single payer is just not there yet. And Mm -hmm. and in our system, whether you like it or not, 
you can't pass national policy unless you get not just not just a majority of Americans. That won't cut it. You need a majority of people in a majority of congressional districts and a majority of states mm-hmm. to elect representatives who are going to support that. That just takes time. And by the time that by the time it happens, you probably need the number to be 70 percent. Mm-hmm. And that's just the way the system works. So I, I really appreciate the fact that you're telling people that because I feel like People were way too hard on Obama, especially people on the left and the alt-right, which I consider to be pretty left-wing, frankly. Um, the alt-right is really? left-wing? Get out of here. Yeah, we made it this far without you saying something that made my head catch on fire, but you did it. You did it. Well, like we said, I mean, Trump is not a typical Republican. Um, I don't I think, think he's a typical from like a like if you look at the trends from the Tea Party on, he hmm. seems like a natural conclusion. Like it's it's a ideology that is immune to outside forces or logic or reason it's got its theories and it's going to implement those damned what any expert or scientific or social consensus says otherwise well i I think it's fair to say that people who want you know fascism are not small government right yeah well i don't (laughs) think anyone wants fascism (laughs) like you know they just that fascism is what you get when you start doing the things i just described you know like yes and no i mean okay so the coalitions of both parties are complicated. There are, you know, it's not like all Democrats and all Republicans think the same, right? Sure. Naturally. And if you thought um, about that about Democrats, I think 2016 onward has has blown exploded that. There's like three or four distinct factions within yes. broadly speaking the left of America and they're not nearly as good as coming together as no. the conservatives are. And most most of well I, I wouldn't characterize Trump or his movement or his party as conservative. I'd call them radical, which is the opposite of conservative. Most people have been trained to think of progressive and conservative as mutually exclusive traditions. Mm-hmm. Truth of the matter is, really, most people are in favor of progress and most people are in favor of conserving certain things about society. The interesting debate is, what are those things? Sure. What do we want to conserve? Where do we want to progress? How do we want to progress? That's where, honestly, I think within, you know, the Overton window of of um, of de- democratic debate, that's where we ought to be focused. Mm-hmm. Um, radical ideologies are the opposite of conservative because because conservative is we want to, you know, we want to gradually progress so that we make sure we don't accidentally throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sure. Somebody who comes in and is as hostile to fundamental institutions as Donald Trump is, is the exact opposite of that. So just because these people think of themselves as conservative or call themselves conservative doesn't mean they are. I mean, let's be honest. The majority of Republican voters are essentially economically left wing, but racist, sexist and or homophobic. And they left the Democratic Party or their parents left the Democratic Party over civil rights issues. Mm-hmm. And the, the the Republican Party cynically courted them through the Southern strategy. And all Donald Trump had to do was come in and say, hey, instead of just pandering to you, I'm going to hand the reins of the party over to you guys. And that's right. what he did. What? Because that's the thing is, like, I when I first learned about the Southern strategy, I thought, well, this is something that's going to eventually collapse in on itself. Um, yeah. And I guess I'm still hoping that it will. But I'm seeing very little evidence of that. It feels like there's I think going it to has. I think really? the Republican Party has imploded. I think Trump is destroying the party. But long term. But they seem to be. Um, well, the thing that I worry about is that there's so many things they've done because the, you know, they got a lot of smart people. They got a lot of well-funded think tanks and they have um, quietly over the last you know decade or so been like, you know, closing the doors of democracy and locking deadbolting it behind them. Like you see okay. that um, I think that we're going to be in a long 
phase of uh, minority rule, especially when you at the federal level, like you're going to like Trump might well win this election. I think he's probably got better than even odds of doing that. But it's going to be he's going to lose the popular vote by 10 million. Um, yeah. Well, and, I mean, you're, what you you just said the problem exactly right. I mean, Trump and his party have have gone from what you would call low level corruption, which is something that exists in every Sure. Party and democracy in the world. Uh, in a society, a certain amount of freedom, you kind of have to tolerate a certain degree of low level corruption. Sure. But what Trump's done is he's just transparently embraced outright corruption. And and you'll see a lot of his supporters defended by saying, like, well, how could it be wrong? He had fully admitted it on television. Right. right. <laughs> and also the Senate exonerated him, right? right? So how could it be wrong? So what what we're what we're witnessing is the early, maybe mid stages of the death of a democracy. And if we want to preserve our democracy, which I would argue is should be the number one priority of any real conservative, um, we got to vote Trump out and he's going to try to cheat. So we really, really have to do this right. With it, no messing around with this. Oh, I'm going to vote for the Green Party or the Liberty. I on, agree. No, I'm going to make a robust case for uh, I mean, there's a couple things where uh, I'm going to have like a 15 minute wrapper in, on our conversation where I talk about this. There's a couple things where I think are bright white lines. Like, for example, it turns out Biden is a rapist. Like, let's say that it goes from like one woman making accusations to like eight to twelve uh, like these things usually they, there's one of two ways these things go. You hear about one thing. There's no substantiation and life goes on or this person actually raped a bunch of people and they're going to come forward. Um, and I think the Democratic Party, if that happens, they, they got they got a stark choice. You either go with the rapist, mm-hmm. in which case I can't in good conscience tell people that they should support him or you replace him with someone who's not a rapist before the Democratic mm-hmm. convention. And I think that, like, if I'm if I'm the 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 DNC, I'm spending everything I can to investigate this and try to come to the truth yeah. of it before that happens. But yeah, barring Biden be a ra- being a rapist, um, I have very little sympathy for people who want to sit this election out or vote for a third party. I mean, I, I could rant about how useless third party politics are and our the way our democracy is structured. It's like. It's it's literally I can mathematically prove that you're wasting your time supporting third parties. Yeah, um, I, I'll actually take it a step further than that. Obviously, I agree with you. I don't. Well, first of all, I don't think it's true. I mean, I I I, I definitely understand why people would err on the side of believing the accuser. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that when it comes to public figures, it's you need to be a little bit more skeptical than that. I think that the the court of public opinion tends to not be very judicious. Sure. Um, and everything that I know about Joe Biden is that he's a flawed man who behaves a little inappropriately around some young women sometimes, like a lot of old dudes do. Doesn't look good. He comes for, he, no, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't. And But he's also, I think, a decent man. And he does not strike me as a rapist or a serial rapist or anything they like that. Do they don't do it. They often the don't. Bill Cosby never struck me as a rapist, man. He never struck well, me as a rapist. It turns out he was. I don't, I don't think he is. Now, if it turns out that he is, then yeah, the DNC absolutely needs. That's to what I'm saying. Him. If he's got a Cosby-esque or Weinstein-esque body count, that will come out, and we'll have a choice of what we need to do. Um, I don't think he would have won if if that were the case. <laughs> or Bill Clinton, for example, Bill Clinton couldn't win an election in 2020. Absolutely not. None of that shit about like you know discrediting the women and not believing like that. That was all pretty. I mean, I was a Republican during Bill Bill Clinton's reign, and I got no problems admitting that I think at at best he's a, sec, a serial sexual assault artist, and at worst he's a rapist. 
Um, yeah. And it hurts also, me as a liberal. He's but, also very good at balancing the budget. <laughs> and it, it hurts me I mean, as he, a div- I, I would rather have Clinton than Donald Trump right now. I mean, the, the, let's be honest. Like, even even if let's let's say they nominate Biden and it's too late to take to do takesy backsies mm-hmm. realistically, mm-hmm. and then it turns out that he actually did do some pretty horrible things, I would still vote for Joe Biden. And I think that it would be the obviously moral thing to do because we already have a serial rapist. We have a guy no, I, in I, my house right now sure. whose whose ex-wife has made you know made multiple public statements about how he raped her how he like mm-hmm. pulled her hair and like like was he full-on beating her mm-hmm. i mean trump is I, I there's the odds that that joe biden is anything like as much of a violent rapist misogynist as trump are basically zero but if you i mean i can see i can i can absolutely see the utilitarian argument for voting for biden even if he is a rapist because he's a rapist with less baggage than trump but if you're also, also just would if, be a better president frankly uh, it, and i agree with you however if you have like some bright white moral lines as far as like what you can support and what you want message you want to send to the party saying that like hey if you if you put up a rapist um we're going to vote against him every time that's not a bad white line you know <laughs> i think it, i think it's a good general rule but it also admits of exceptions and the the thing people need to keep in mind i mean once again i agree with you mm-hmm. obviously the dnc should get somebody else if that's the case right mm-hmm. so that's you know yeah. the rest of this is theoretical and, and if they but, don't that I says mean, a lot about the party that maybe it needs to die as well as the, the republican party uh and we need something new we need something different but well, we'll see. I mean, both parties are going through a big coalition shift. What I mm-hmm. would like to see from the Democratic Party, you know, we were talking about how the GOP base is not really economically right wing, and mm-hmm. they're 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 really just deeply awful people. I mean, they're 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 just they're sexist and racist. They're just they're not good people. Um, I don't think Every that's a, smart, I don't think that's a personal... real conservative has left the Republican Party. They are ripe for the picking. I think the Democratic Party needs to create a coalition of center left and center right people and 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 just dominate politics. I, I want like to see that. I want to modify your statement. I think that all principled people have left the Republican Party. There's plenty of smart people still in the Republican Party doing a lot of dirty shit. Uh, they're just they're just doing it because uh, they're they're getting theirs. Yeah. I, I, and, and we don't want it. We don't have time, as you said, to go into a long thing about capitalism and socialism, I'd ha- be happy to come on and talk about it again. Have but to. The, the important thing to keep in mind with that, as far as it relates to the Republican Party specifically, is that um, a, a, a truly capitalist party would want to more or less have a separation between business and the state, you know, kind of like we have a separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that doesn't mean that the state can't regulate business, sure. right? But it does mean that you ought not to be taking a bunch of money from the middle class and just giving it away to corporations as, as uh, you know, corporate welfare. The Republican Party is not capitalist. It is uh, kleptocratic. Uh, and kleptocracy is as hostile to pure capitalism as uh, communism is. Sure. I, you know, I mean, in communism, the state owns business and in kleptocracy, business owns the state. Mm-hmm. They are both the opposite of a separation between business and state. So, uh, yes, there are smart people in the Republican Party. They are like Vladimir Putin mustache twirling villains who yeah. want to Moscow. rape and pillage the American people. Moscow yeah. Mitch, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I know you're out of time. You got to get on to another appointment. Uh, I appreciate you spending some time with us today. I would like to have you on in the future because I think there's a lot of like uh, grab a beer and have wide ranging political conversations i'd love to have with you but uh i want to get uh talk about a little bit about ubi and the democracy bucks because i really think those are great i i don't know how how what what 
I don't know what their future is, but I think they are. Um, there's certainly something we're talking about. There's certainly I think Yang was one of the only people talking about uh, the threat of automation and what it could do to our economy and proposing any kind of solutions towards it. I thought democracy dollars was a great idea to reduce corruption and, you know, return balance, you know, to the citizenry versus the corporations and the moneyed interests. And I wanted to have somebody knowledgeable on to talk about that because I just that I kind of sat that stuff out this year uh, in, in favor of some of the other stuff that was kind of like more mainstream in, in the democratic uh, primary so uh turns out all that stuff got thrown out the window too and we're we're, we're stuck <laughs> with biden so um but i mean well, that's- i mean i i'm actually pretty happy with biden to be honest um i think that if you are yang gang uh and yang gang is a fascinating creature i've got to say sure i i i, I have I've, like I've, a look, watch you guys as twitter stuff and and uh, i have a love-hate relationship with the yang gang uh-huh I love that they supported Yang, but I have to say Yang is too good for Yang Gang. Like the, 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 like 80% of Yang Gang is made up essentially of Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump supporters mm-hmm. who are just going to go right back to Sanders or Trump as soon as Yang dropped out. Mm-hmm. What Yang was trying to do is he was the only liberal politician who – and I'm using liberal in the, the classic – sense right mm-hmm. which means it applies to like paul ryan right right <laughs> um he was the only liberal politician who was trying to reach the populists right the populism is a movement that tends toward illiberalism mm-hmm. for a number of reasons mm-hmm. but mainly because they see liberal protections of individual rights as impediments to pure democracy right mm-hmm. so what yang was trying to do is he's trying to save america frankly by channeling all that populist rage, which is righteous in some regards, right, in a more productive direction. Um, And he failed to do it this time, but he started a really important conversation. And I think that now that he's, I mean, he's he's doing the opposite. Sanders was, was, you know, running against the DNC and attacking Mm -hmm. the party. What Yang's doing is he's trying to gently reform the party um, by, by actually playing along with the party. And he has a much better relationship with Biden than he does with Sanders, for example. Sanders is an ideologue. Biden is a pragmatist. And Biden is is exactly the sort of person who would listen to a smart guy like Andrew Yang, because he is, he is humble enough to know that unlike Donald Trump, he doesn't think he knows better than the experts about everything. <laughs> you know? No, I, I've... Like that. <laughs> I've said that I think Andrew Yang's candidacy will have an impact on 2024 similar to what Bernie Sanders candidacy had in 2016. Like everyone's going to be talking about democracy dollars and UBI in 2024, the way that, you know, there wasn't the open hostility to universal health care, Medicare for all that there was in like 2016. I think those ideas are not going to go away and they're going to be more and more relevant to, to Americans as, you know, automation continues to bite as income equality continues to bite. Um, yeah. So I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing what he does in the next few years. I, I agree. So, Aaron, I want to do exactly what you ask and tr- kind of wrap up the conversation about democracy dollars and UBI. Mm-hmm. So about democracy dollars, the thing to keep in mind is, like you said, yeah, it does give a, a significantly more power to regular people. And sometimes regular people do stupid things like vote for the rock. Right. Mm-hmm. That said, I would take a toaster over Donald Trump. Right. I would t- um, I'd, I'd actually be unironically <laughs> excited about Dwayne The Rock Johnson as president. <laughs> He seems like a pretty smart guy, to be honest. He does. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, so, but, but, you know, there's a balance, right? There's a balance. And right now it's skewed against regular people. So democracy dollars would would bring the balance back. I, I don't think that it would go too far. I don't think it would result in, you know, mob rule or anything like that. So I'm not terribly worried about that. I support that policy with a little bit of a little bit of reticence. Um, 
UBI, uh, something that some of the, I guess you would call them market socialists, would like about UBI is that it is an, a really nice transition from a purely capitalist society into whatever kind of Star Trek future they might want, mm-hmm. um, it, because it will be able to preserve the benefits of a market. And in fact, actually, it would probably result in uh, the golden age of capitalism. I think that capitalism would flourish under a UBI. Um, we should say a little, and then and then if capitalism is replaced by some kind of market socialism in the long term, it would. I would want it to happen in as libertarian a way as possible, where essentially, um, you know, where necessary goods are so available because of automation, they're so cheap that you you have you still have a strictly speaking capitalist society, but as far as the capitalist in the sense that you still have the rights of private capital and ownership, but that in the long term, it becomes less and less relevant um, and class differences break down over time because, you know, there's, 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 uh, there's more naturally, there's more equity um, because things are just so available. That's, that would only be a good thing, mm-hmm. I have to say. Um, and in UBI, so if there are market socialists out there, I think they should support UBI. I'm not one, but I, I think it would be good for them. Um, we didn't talk about the funding mechanism. So really quickly, I, what do you know about it? I mean, it's a VAT. Uh, that's um, a, which yeah, is something that's, that's, that's doesn't like. But, but that's something that's very ubiquitous, like in Europe. Like everyone's mm-hmm. got VAT yes. over there. And Canada. Yeah, the, Canada I, too, right? Our friendly neighbors to the north? Yeah, no, I mean, you're exactly right. That's that's the, the if people, you want to arm your listeners with some arguments to support um, the VAT as a way of funding UBI, that's the first thing you need to say is like all of the social democratic countries that Bernie Sanders himself points to is like the model all have a VAT. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm staunchly <laughs> anti-hypocritical on three right turns. And if you're going to use Europe to bash conservatives about healthcare, then it's fair to look at some of the other things they're doing, like value-added tax, um, and and maybe not be as hostile. But I don't know much about it. Well, you want to talk about it? Yeah, I mean, we don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but basically, the idea is that it captures it would capture essentially ten percent of gross domestic product every year. And what's lovely about it is it can't be avoided by corporations. Mm. So yes, it would result in you know uh, goods and services costing a little bit more for consumers, but. It also means that every time you do a Google search or retweet something, um, it, it actually generates revenue for number of corporations, right? People run ads on Facebook. All of that stuff is being gathered in, into the system and collectively results in um, you know, approximately 10% of GDP that then gets fairly redistributed across the entire um, system. Uh, it is a it is definitely a tax and spend redistribution plan. It's just one that is more compatible with capitalism than than the the tax and spend welfare system we have now, um, because it's more fair. And for people who like to think of themselves as critical of capitalism, I would just focus on the more fair part. That's what I mean by it. Yeah. Well, I would love to have you on to talk a little bit more about socialism versus capitalism because that's where I'm, you know, uh, kind of doing a lot of my current thinking. And I think you'd be a good foil for that conversation. Um, but hey, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, look forward to more talks with you in the future. All right. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Take care. So that's it for today's show. I appreciate Rio for coming on. And if you want to learn more about universal basic income, democracy dollars, or any of the other forward thinking policies popularized by Andrew Yang, I highly recommend checking out his podcast moving forward. You can also find and follow him on Twitter at RioPublican. Hope we can have him back on to argue the merits of liberal capitalism versus democratic socialism and market socialism and all the points in between. 
If you value the work we do here at Three Right Turns, I'd appreciate your support at patreon.com slash swizzbold. In return, you'll get custom Reddit flair, access to our exclusive monthly live streams, and much more. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank our Fred-level patrons, Laura Luth, Mark Hahn, Kira Grusho, Angela Murano, and A.V. Rao, a.k.a. the God of Krypton. We absolutely could not do our shows without you. And if you haven't joined, there's already quite a few of those live streams I talked about archived just waiting for you to listen to. We did one last week, in fact, where we had some spirited conversations about the coronavirus, the economic impacts and in-person voting. And I hope you get a chance to check them out real soon. I'll be back next Monday with Cecily to talk about how you can live a happier and healthier life and share advice with her ever-growing community on One Weird Trick. And of course, I'll be back the following week to talk more about politics, policy, and economics right here on Three Right Turns. Because at the end of the day, it's not about Biden. It's not about Bernie. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about all of us. So let's get out there, start persuading our fellow Americans, and have a great week. Great week.